Welcome to the Women in Work podcast. If you're a regular listener here, you might notice that I'm not Courtney Moore or Missy Branch. My name is Maddie, and I serve as the Director of Marketing and Communications for Women in Work. This summer on our podcast, we're going to do something a little different. One of our initiatives at Women in Work is our book club, where we choose a book to read together as a community. At the close of our time of reading, we always interview the author of the book that we've read together. And those conversations are recorded live so people can submit questions. You'll hear a little bit of that at the end of this episode. For this season, we're posting five of our previous book club conversations for you to enjoy. Last week, we shared a conversation with Pastor J.D. Greer on his book, What Are You Going to Do With Your Life? If you missed that conversation, I hope you'll go back and listen. JD shares a really encouraging word to women who might feel discouraged by their place or lack of place in their church, and he casts a vision for how your work and vocation can be used by God for kingdom purposes. But today on this episode, you'll hear Courtney Moore, the founder and president of Women in Work, and Courtney Powell, the ministry content director of Women in Work, interview Hannah Anderson. Hannah is an author and Bible teacher who lives in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia with her husband, Nathan, and three children. Hannah's goal is to encourage believers to think deeply and broadly about how the gospel transforms every area of life. She also just contributed a chapter to our new book, Women in Work, Bearing God's Image and Joining in His Mission Through Our Work, and her chapter is entitled Bodies of Work. In this episode, we discuss important topics like image bearing, why non-income producing work is just as important as paid work, and how you can love your neighbor through your work. There's so much more to this conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. Guys, I'm Courtney Moore. I'm the founder and president of Women in Work. This is my co-host. There you are. Courtney Powell, our book club coordinator, and below me there is Hannah Anderson, author of several books, but for our purposes tonight, um, we will be talking with her about Made for More, an invitation to live in God's image, and this is our third book that we've read um, as part of our book club, and we are just thrilled, Hannah, to have you here. Thank you so much for uh, being here. Well, I am glad to join you tonight. All right, so let's get started. Uh, Before we dive into the content of the book, Hannah, we would love to just learn a little bit more about you. Um, Can you tell us where you live, you know, if you're married, how many kids you have, things like that? Sure. Um, I am coming from, to you from Southwest Virginia. Um, I am currently coming to you from underneath my stairs. Um, (laughs) This is my little Zoom podcast work closet that we decided we finally needed after um, COVID hit earlier this year. Um, So my husband is Nathan and we've been married 19 years. And we have three kids. Um, Phoebe is 16, Harry is 14, and Peter is 11. And a lot of our life, um, the first uh, kind of part of our life together um, has been in church ministry. Um, We're currently in a season where we're not actively in church ministry right now. Um, But I'm also a uh, writer um, and a speaker. Um, I try to focus my work on the question of what does it mean to flourish in the world and how would we navigate um, not just our callings as women, but just our 
our callings more broadly um, as those who would bear God's image? And particularly, how do we do that in um, a world that isn't necessarily designed for flourishing, like a society or a culture? So um, this book, Made for More, was the first book I ever had the opportunity to write. And I find that I'm just pulling the threads um, with everything else I write. This was kind of like the foundation. And I find that I just keep going back and finding more to think about, more to explore, more to unpack in my later work. Um, so that's us. We, you know, our lives are probably very much like um, everyone else's in terms of just busy and active and trying to um, fulfill our everyday vocations, you know, of school and work and neighboring and um, living well with those God has placed us with. Um, and then uh, beyond that, we are, I would say another thing perhaps that's a little unique for us is we are in um, a working class community and that's where a lot of our ministry has been focused. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that juxtaposition of um, both considering women's callings, but also considering how we think of work differently based on our socioeconomics or the kinds of pressure points that come in when you live in a particular context. Maybe different questions come up for you. So those are the kinds of uh, providential things that God has brought together sovereignly to make my life and to make my vocation. And a lot of my work um, does flow out of those kinds of questions that present themselves just while I'm either mothering or working in the church or trying to do um, my own work or watching things happen. Um, I'd like to say that, you know, the uniqueness of our lives doesn't give us unique answers, but it might give us unique questions. It gives mm -hmm. us a vantage point on certain topics where we can't say, I have seen, therefore I know, but we could say, I see from a certain perspective, so I have different questions than maybe are being answered in other places. Um, so that's where I'm, where I'm at and where I'm coming from. Beautiful. And so you mentioned your other books. This was the first of three that you have actually finished, and I know you're working on a new one, right? Yes. Yeah. So you've got Made for More. Your second was Humble Roots, and then All That's Good. And then you have a new book, um, what is it, Turning of Days, coming out yes. in February? Yes, that's coming out in February. Um, it is more of an exploration of um, what does the world, the creation around us teach. Um, mm -hmm. It's a, about natural revelation. And that was a fun book to work on because my husband actually illustrated it. And we learned all kinds of new things about working together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How to do that as a couple and um, the different ways that your personality and giftings come together for good and where they clash. And we really enjoyed that process, but we also learned a whole lot too. <laughs> Have you done work other than writing? I know writing and speaking is one of the things. Tell us about just some, maybe in previous seasons of life. Well, when I first um, graduated from college, I graduated with a humanities degree, which was a strong base of literature, language, philosophy, um, history, and I found work in um, almost immediately after graduating in the expatriate business community because all of those um, different features did really well 
Um, they, they combined well to uh, work with people who were coming into American culture and wondering what the heck was going on. Um, so I did a lot of ESL training and cultural um, acclimation for um, like managers of uh, corporations maybe coming from Europe. I worked um, with um, a lot of folks maybe that were working with BMW in the upstate of South Carolina um, and, and that kind of context. Um, and then after doing that for a couple of years, my husband's uh, work in the church kind of began to guide the, the, the rest of our work as a family. And we um, kind of just followed wherever um, his calling as a pastor took us. And that, that took us everywhere from um, a year in New Zealand to Pennsylvania to South Carolina to Virginia. Um, and in those seasons, I was also um, really leaning into my work as a mother and um, a wife. And eventually, as my youngest got to be, I think about two, um, I started kind of thinking about what the next season might hold, what, what might I need to develop um, now that I could come up for air, you know, and I could have two thoughts that came together. Um, and that started the journey toward writing. Um, and that eventually developed over the last nine or 10 years. Wow. Right. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I love that. Okay, I want to dive into some of the book material. So I'm going to read a quote from the introduction because we, I mean, really from the very start of the book just was like, we were blown away or I was blown away. Um, and we just feel like, I felt like this sentence really summarized well, kind of what I felt like the book was about. Um, so it says this, it says, this book is not a call to deny womanhood in order to embrace being made in his image but it's a call to understand that womanhood and everything that comes with it serves a greater purpose. And ultimately it's a call, no, an invitation to reimagine yourself, not simply as a woman, but first and foremost, as a person destined to be like your God. So I love the clarification that you made here that being an image bearer, being made in the image of God, it doesn't mean that we deny our womanhood but that we, we have like a ro more robust understanding of what that means. And so I wanted to ask a few questions just kind of about that. Um, basically, what are some pitfalls or like some signs that maybe we are finding the root of our identity in our womanhood? And then what are some signs that maybe we are denying our womanhood and how can we how can we just have a more balanced approach there how can we ensure that we're not despising the fact that we're women that we're embracing that but we're not idolizing it at the same time well i think one of the the struggles particularly for women and i have to say i don't hear men having this struggle i, I don't hear them questioning whether they're fully formed in the image of god and can be male at the same time um so there's almost this very unique conversation that's directed toward women and some of it comes in the way we talk within the church some of it comes from secular society as well and it's almost this assumption um that to be female or to be woman is something unique, um, as if humanness, the baseline is male and female is 
other, something mm-hmm. else. Um, and so what happens sometimes is we begin to think of that category of woman as the greatest defining thing about who we are. And so everything becomes interpreted through our womanness or our femaleness. And so um, Dorothy L. Sayers has some really good essays about this. And she was a writer back in the uh, 30s and 40s, um, even up into uh, the 50s, I believe. And she was part of the um, Inkling set and, you know, knew Lewis. And and she makes this point in one of her essays that um, whether or not a woman wants to study something or to learn something, it shouldn't matter. She shouldn't question whether this is something a woman should do. She said, it doesn't matter if I want to study this, I want to study it because I want to study it. I don't have to ask the question, is this something a woman does? This is just something a human does. Mm -hmm. And so she had a very strong sense of the fact that there was this base level humanity that often got lost for women because they were so busy asking the question, is this what a woman should do? Mm -hmm. Um, And and what they were doing with that question was, should I do this? I am a woman, therefore, should a woman do this? And kind of losing that sense of um, fundamental personhood or fundamental sense of self. And I think some of the ways we might do this now, um, again, where we think of Uh, maybe what our callings in life might be, you know, what God might be calling us to. And we immediately begin to think in categories um, that are appropriate for, for womanhood. And we say, well, I can do these things because that's kind of what women do. And I'm a woman, therefore I can do these things. Um, Or these are the roles of womanhood. Like it's, it's my womanhood becomes defined when I become a wife or when I become a mother or these other things. And I think what the call I'm trying to make with with this book is for us to to develop a sense of self um, that does not reject our womanhood, that does not push it away or try to set it aside in order to become human, but that we recognize that our core humanity is shared and we are human beings who are female. And um, I think that recapturing of the category of being human um, is what I'm hoping to lay first. And and to be fair, not a lot of people, male or female, really take time to think about what is it that makes us human? What is it that is that core identity? Um, On the other hand, to the question of how we might deny our womanhood, um, I do think that's, that's a real temptation. If you live in a society where humanness has kind of become default maleness or what men do, as we're striving toward um, an understanding of ourselves as human, we could confuse humanness with maleness. Mm -hmm. And we would set men as kind of the baseline for what it means to be human and therefore try to do whatever men do. And I think you do see some of this um, in secular philosophies that rather than saying, um, you know, equality is um, parallel tracks for men and women, equality becomes women behaving like men or women achieving the way men achieve. And it's a subtle denial of womanhood. It's a subtle shifting of definitions of what it means to be human. And I think within the church, perhaps the way I've seen this the most is when we kind of 
develop a mentality that to be female is not to be serious or to be a woman is not to be, um, you know, it's somehow weak or it's somehow looked down on. And so I'm going to show my humanness. I'm going to show my strength by rejecting, um, you know, anything that's stereotypically female and kind of looking down on it as if it's not valuable. Um, and I think the danger of that is that we're kind of buying into the narrative. We're, we're buying into this fundamental belief that women aren't fully human. Um, and the call I'm trying to make in this book is um, you are fully made in God's image, fully female, and you can be unapologetic about both of those things and find your deeper humanity that informs um, your womanhood and celebrate it and, and step right into it with um, complete confidence that God has made you and created you and approves of your womanhood in ways that maybe you know society doesn't or the church doesn't or even maybe you yourself in your own mind don't yet. Yeah, gosh, that is Yes, that is really good. That's really helpful. Um, thank you for clar clarifying that. It makes a lot of sense too. I think that, especially what you said at the beginning, I feel like I resonated with that where it's like you kind of in your mind have this image of humanity as maleness and that the, what's unique about being a woman is almost being like less than or the weaker of the, or whatever, you know, just mm -hmm. kind of seeing yourself as under as opposed to having just this picture of two fully like embodied image bearers, you know, male and female. Right. Um, I love that distinction. I love what, I love what you had to say there. And I'll just give a quick example. Cause I know this can be very abstract, sure. um, but, and this isn't, it would be easy for us to look at perhaps the church and say the church is doing this or this is, you know, conservative spaces, but it's not. It's, it's secular society that's doing this as well. Um, my mom had a, a massive um, heart attack earlier um, in the year and God preserved her and brought her through. But one of the reasons that it was difficult for her that she, she didn't get the care she needed initially was because the signs of a heart attack um, in women are different are physically different than the signs of a heart attack in men. And a lot of the messaging that we have about a heart attack is, Oh, you clutch your chest or you feel pain in your arm or, or those kinds of traits. And that's true for men, but it's not the way women's bodies experience um, heart attacks. And so this is just an example, and it's across the board. Um, you see it in a lot of places in, in um, society where we have defined, oh, a heart attack happens this way. Well, it happens that way in a male body, but it doesn't happen that way in a female body. But because we've kind of defined maleness as the category of that abstract humanness, we think we know the way a human body responds to a heart attack. Um, and what we actually have to do is develop two visions. Well, this is one way male humans operate, and this is a way that female humans operate. And, and that kind of... Um, that kind of paradigm, you know, tracks out in a lot of different ways as well. And I think it's not, um, it's just perhaps something that we have yet to explore about the ways that women are, are fully embodying humanness yeah. in ways that are distinct to females. 
Yeah. Yeah. That was a great example. That was a really good kind of practical picture. Um, yeah. Gosh, that was great. It's fascinating to think about too. I'm so grateful that you've written on this so much as well. Well, um, obviously we really love chapter eight in your book because it's a whole chapter <laughs> about image bearing and work. And since that is our whole main thing, uh, we really want to talk about chapter eight a little bit. And you start the chapter off talking about, uh, you give some imagery from the line, the witch in the wardrobe, wardrobe, sorry. Um, and it's after the fact, um, you know, the white witch has been dethroned, you know, it's all great. We've got brothers and sisters or kings and queens now, and they're, you know, ruling and all of these things. And so you kind of um, say in the book that um, no matter what we do, whether, you know, kind of what I talked about earlier, no matter the work you're, do you're doing, it's all an expression of God's royal nature within us. And so, you know, there's a kind of a cultural divide there of the cultural picture of work, the, the, the ideas we pick up about what work is from the world we live in versus what the Bible actually says about work. And so um, I guess my question is, you know, what are, what are some ways that those are at odds with each other, mm -hmm. especially as it relates to, you know, dominion as, as image bearers, you know? Right. Well, I think obviously one of the, um, the, the, the imagery in the line, which of the wardrobe is one of rule. Mm -hmm. And um, I love that imagery because the Kings and Queens, I think sometimes in our cultural history, the way we think about Kings and Queens is like the Kings in charge and the queen is just there to um, look pretty and sit on the throne next to him. Yeah. Um, and the way Lewis presents it in the language in the wardrobe is that um, both the Kings and Queens had responsibilities and rule and they had capacities. And it, it's not just that they had the freedom to do things, but they had the obligation to do things. Yeah. So they had the responsibility over certain aspects of the kingdom um, that they had to fulfill and exercise their work. And, and that's similar to the vision we see in Genesis 1, uh, where God entrusts the man and woman with um, dominion over the world. And he, it's you know, theologians call it the creation mandate, mm -hmm. and it's the call to go into the world and be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion. One thing that's really important that we have to recognize about the text is those, that's one call. It's not separate things. Um, the woman is not called to um, be fruitful and multiply and the man to exercise dominion, right? Um, it's one call bound up together that the exercise of dominion and the being fruitful and multiply actually are intertwined uh, like a rope might be. And if you pull one thread, it unravels the other thread. Mm -hmm. um, and that rope or that joint mandate is then given jointly to the man and woman. So there is as much a call to the woman made in God's image to exercise dominion over this new world as a representative um, of God on earth to, to spread his glory and to show what he is like. Now, that's not the way we think about work at all No, it's in not. society. Um, it's not the way we think about it in the church, I don't even think. Um, the way we tend to think about work in a contemporary Western society is uh, what do you do for money? You know, what is your job? What is your career? Um, 
And that really undercuts a whole lot of good work that's happening and a whole lot of um, good exercising of dominion that's going on in society because we can't see it because it doesn't have a dollar figure attached to it. Mm. Um, And I think some of the insecurity women often feel is, you know, objectively, we tend to be in roles that the marketplace doesn't value. um, And we tend to be in roles that are either uh, not paid or are underpaid just because of the value system of society. And if we let that define our work, if we let those kind of cultural norms tell us whether we work or not, um, it would you know, it would drive us crazy. I mean, we would lose a strong sense of self and even calling in the world because it's really a false narrative about work and um, our vocations. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we have this conversation with women all the time where women say, well, I think that, you know, I like the things that you guys post, but I don't actually have a job. And so I don't really know if I should be invested in this organization. Um, and, and I feel like we have that conversation with women over and over again. If you're, if you're work, every, all of us are working right. to some kind of, to some kind of ends and whether or not it's, it, there's just a big emphasis on income producing work but that doesn't mean that the work in the home is any less valuable, but it is, it isn't seen. And so that can make it feel, I mean, at the end of the day, it can make it feel less valuable for sure. Um, and so I feel, you know, that was one of the things that I thought your book did a really good job where the section where you talk about that, you kind of talk about, well, first of all, the, the weakness or the, the temptation to, find your identity in something other than being an image bearer. It's that temptation can come to a woman with a career who's looking for her identity in her career, her income producing career, or in a, in a woman that's staying home and is teaching her children or is a stay at home mom or however it manifests itself. Our work can become an idol, but it is all work. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that was really helpful. I think that, um, we just put those things at odds and it's really hard to reconcile that in our minds of, well, how do we, how can I call me staying with my kids all day work when someone else is leaving the house and making money for their families? Right. In our culture, we did, we set up the dichotomy between where the work is happening. Is yeah. it happening in the marketplace? That's legitimate, real, true work. Mm-hmm. Is it happening at home? Well, that's domestic. That's, private, that's not real and true. And what you see in the scripture is not a dichotomy between uh, where the work is happening, but whether you're working. So the tension in scripture always is, are you active and working or are you slothful? and mm-hmm. neglecting your responsibilities. And yeah. the the mark of a mature woman, a mature image bearer, is a woman who commits herself to her responsibilities and fulfills her work, um, whether it's to her family, to her community, to her church, to her um, job. And the mark of an immature woman is a woman who is lazy and neglects her responsibilities and and does not um, exercise her God-given agency to work. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that's a totally different um, tension that the scripture is presenting than the one we typically operate under. Because we tend to see if um, a woman has sufficient money, then she doesn't have to work. 
right? Mm -hmm. Because again, we're defining work based on money and what it produces. And so if you, the reverse of that equation, if, if work is about money, the reverse of that is if you have money, then you don't have to work. And it's, it's almost a invitation to slothfulness mm. um, because you have sufficient resources. Therefore, you don't have to work. Therefore, you, you can do whatever you want with your time. Um, and that's explicitly the kind of thing that the scripture speaks against for women is that you can't just indulge your, in your time if you have resources. Um, you're still called to work. One of the things, Hannah, I just absolutely loved in here was there was such an emphasis and a focus on your work being a way that you image God um, by serving others. You Mm -hmm. know, really, it is about the good of other people. And I mean, you even were using some of the same language. I I didn't read this, I promise, when I wrote our, our values for women at work, but even some of the same wording of like, leveraging the gifts that he's given you. And I, and, and in our, on my website, you can see that it says for his glory, but I love how you really defined that. And you said, you know, you're going to leverage those gifts, whether it's in an office or whether it's in a home or if it's wherever you are for the good of others mm-hmm. and how our God is a, is a worker, you mm-hmm. know, and we just image him. We really reflect who he is. There is a quote at the end of chapter eight, I just thought this was so beautiful. Um, you were talking about um, women who work in lunchroom cafeterias. And you said, as you serve lunch to rows and rows of hungry bellies in a school cafeteria, you are feeding them just like he feeds us. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I'm taking that as I feed my children lunch tomorrow in my home, you know, mm-hmm. and just to model, okay, this is how he he takes care of us. And so we can just reflect him. I would love for you just to, I guess I don't really have a specific question with that, but just the purpose of our work, doing Mm -hmm. good to others and serving him and imaging him. Right. There there is, it's so deeply bound up with who we are. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's not just the creation mandate. It's, it's in the epistles too. So in Ephesians two, we know the the classic verses um, eight and nine to eight and nine. It's not of works. You're you're saved by faith. You know grace alone. But then Ephesians two ten says this: You are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God ordained um, that you would walk before ordained that you would walk in them. So like the purpose, not just of our human existence, but the purpose of our Christian lives is that there is good work that God has for us to do. And even the gospel is a redemption of our ability um, to do that work that he's called us to. And one of the ways, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and into verse 10, one of the ways God redeems our work is by freeing us for doing it for the wrong reasons. Mm. So the whole point of grace and our salvation being of faith is so that we wouldn't get the idea that our work somehow is self-justifying or our work somehow is what gains acceptance or that our work is the basis of our blessing and reward. And it's almost as if in that short passage, I, I know it's about um, soteriology and salvation, but it directly relates to even the headspace that we come into our work with, that in our culture, work is so tightly bound to financial prosperity, to 
blessings in our life and success. If you just work hard enough, you'll reach these things. And it's almost as if Paul has to really, um, you know, just hit this home where your work is not about your safety, your self-justification, your salvation. Your work exists because God is working in you. You are the piece of work he is working on so that you will do the good works he has called you to. Um, And again, you know, Paul's emphasis in the epistles about our different gifting and how all of this come together um, with different capacities and different strengths and different weaknesses, all working together for this greater thing that God is accomplishing. Um, So it is foundational, yes, to our humanity, but it is foundational um, to even our sanctification and our growth um, in Christ-likeness. Yeah, I even appreciated in that same kind of, I don't ever remember if it was in that same section or the one before, but you, you talked about work and how our giftings and abilities are for, for human flourishing, but you, you used the word in there that we can use, utilize those things when they're not used well, we can actually be tools of oppression for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that that was really interesting how a disordered view of, of, our image of our being an image bearer disorders our work. And then instead of serving the world at large and promoting flourishing, we are tools of oppression for, you know, we can become tools of oppression. Mm-hmm. So Hannah, what would that look like? What would, you know, flesh that like a tool of oppression, like, you know, can you put some flesh on that? What, what, what would that look like if we're trying to think of that? Yeah. Like a, pra- I guess a practical kind of example of how that could look. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it goes back to what are your foundational reasons for working in the first place, right? Um, Are you working to serve others well? Are you working um, out of obedience? If you're not, if you're working from a place of scarcity or self um, kind of justification, or you're working to prove yourself in the world, then you enter in with this competition mindset right? So in a space of abundance where God is active in your work and working through you and you're doing it out of obedience and blessing, there's abundance. So, so your work is just one more thing that's contributing to the flourishing of the world. If you're operating out of a place of scarcity, your work has to compete with someone else's work, right? So then it becomes not a partnership, but it becomes, um, it can become oppressive. It's, well, I wrote this book on this topic and she wrote a book on a very similar topic. Well, she is now my competitor and I'm going to do everything to get my work to the top and get my work seen and my work to be um, bought more, loved more. And I'm not, and I'm not talking about just marketplace dynamics about competition and sales, but there is a sense where you begin to see other workers as enemies. Hmm. So what you're going to do then is try to get you know, the upper hand, you're going to do everything you can to dominate and push them down because they have not become um, a fellow image bearer called to certain work. Their work becomes threatening to your work. Um, And because you were counting on your work to self-justify or you were counting on your work um, to provide for you rather than counting on God to provide for you, that other person is a person 
you can't cooperate with or mm. honor or celebrate. They have to become someone that you step on while you're climbing the ladder. Yeah, we see this so much in like Instagram, social media promotes this so much, even with the pressure or when you see other moms that are doing things better than you or you see, or whatever, um, you know, the kind of culture of comparison, it's true. You start to see other women or just image bears as enemies or trying to constantly like one up, you know, one another, or you feel shame, you know, you start to feel shame because you're not doing the things that these women are doing or, or just whatever. I like, I love what, what, I loved what you said that when you are working as an image bearer, you know, as unto the Lord, you're operating out of, you're entering into a space of abundance. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really good. Instead of operating from a place of scarcity, that was really good. So much freedom you know, the freedom, right. to serve, the freedom to love, you can put your pride and your, even really your desires, you can lay that down because you yeah. are trusting the Lord. You're not trusting yourself and the fruit of your own hand. You know, you're trusting the Lord to produce that fruit. Um, so good. Thank you for that. Well, Hannah, the chapter you have about um, education and knowledge, this was just such music to my ears. We hear so many times the story of Mary and Martha you know, it's always, um, you know, one's in the kitchen working so hard and, you know, she needs to quit worrying about fretting all that, about all of that work. She needs to sit at Jesus' feet and abide. And that's all true. Um, but I love how you really take what Jesus did and really promote um, education yeah. of, of right not like you can learn, you know, <laughs> you have the freedom to learn. <laughs> right. Um, so let's see what, so here's just the question I have for you. What is the purpose of learning or pursuing okay. knowledge and how does that affect our image bearing and how we serve the world? Right. And again, so much of what I'm trying to do in this book is, um, help people ask those fundamental questions. Why am I doing what I'm doing? What mm -hmm. is the point? What is the purpose? What is the purpose of my work? What is the purpose of my calling? What is the purpose of learning? Um, because I think a lot of times we move through life without questioning the environment around us or without questioning um, the structures and they all have values. Like there are purposes and values built into the structures um, that we get, exist in within our cultures and subcultures. And one of the values built into education um, for our society is education is to get a good job, to make a good paycheck, to be safe and stable in your income. And so a lot of times the pursuit of education is very much tied to this question of, well, what are you going to do with it? Yes. Like uh, an education is only validated if it results in a job that makes you money. And that's a particularly difficult question for women then because so much of um, the potential for your seasons of life to be interrupted either um, by marriage or childbearing years and the marketplace is going on without you while you're... And so at some point, the question of well, how much education do I need or should I spend time doing this um, because I'm just going to be at home or I'm going to be a mom or I'm going to do this. And so those kinds of questions emerge um, not necessarily from oppression of women 
as much as a misunderstanding of what education is. Um, It's a fundamental misunderstanding of what human beings need and how we're created. And so the, the call to educate ourselves, to better our minds, to learn, to grow in our capacity, uh, to reason and to think through things may be related to getting skills to contribute to the world, you know, to work through your job. But it also may just be that God gave you a mind and he calls you to love him, not just with your heart, but with your mind and the development of um, your capacity to think and to learn and to grow in the knowledge of God um, is directly related to whether you're um, investing and engaging in that part of yourself. And, And again, I mean, we have to look back to this is the same God who reveals himself in Christ as the Logos, the word, the thought of God. And so, this idea that women, the question of whether women would need to pursue education is really, well, is a woman human? And do human beings need to grow in their knowledge and understanding and their capacity? Um, And so fundamentally, that's more about what education is about. We tend in our culture and in this moment to have a very technical understanding of education um, that has to lead to something uh, for it to be validated. But I think the way the scripture calls us to learn and grow and know God um, is very different than what we culturally see. Yeah, I I have a liberal arts degree and I feel like a lot of the ideas that you're promoting, you know, are valued in you know, liberal arts educations or things like that. But I've even found myself in recent years when people ask what I went to school for, I have a a degree in music and then I have a degree from a seminary. And I feel like even, I'll even catch myself saying like, yeah, you know, I went to college to study what I, you know, was passionate about or what I felt, you know, gifted in, but I don't really use it or I don't, you know, it's almost like I'm apologizing for the fact that I studied something that was valuable to me. And so I felt a lot of freedom and really like unburdening from that type of thinking when I was reading this, because it's like, you know what I went and I grew and learned and you, you, you say that there's a sentence in that chapter where you talk about how, what we're learning informs what we're loving or like even helps develop what we're loving. And it's true. I have a degree in music and I had, by the end of it, I had such a deeper appreciation, you know, um, such a deeper love for what it was that I just spent all this time learning and studying. And, and so I loved that. I loved the idea that knowledge and learning is a way that we're, we, that's another way that we are imaging God. Well, and I think it goes beyond whether we have degrees too. I mean, I'm in a similar position with you where you are with the the liberal arts degree. I have a humanities degree and I tell people, you know, um, I can't get a job, but (laughs) I make a delightful dinner guest. Like I can come to you about whatever we want to talk about. And and it's just kind of a joke, but um, I think the question even outside of formal education is, what role should um, 
reading books, should learning play in your life? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I, I find so remarkable about the digital age is like I have I have a BA, but that's all I have. And the learning and education that I've had in the last 10 years has been really fueled by, you're going to have to do this for yourself. Like, like go find it, go read, go learn, because that is, um, it, it, it's not about the degree so much as the process and the pursuit um, of just learning more about God and about the world that he's made. Right. And I like how in the book you talk about I like Sorry. how in the book you talk about what we would even consider secular things, you know, secular knowledge. You know, I feel like as I listen to you, it's easy for me to put on like a theology hat. Oh, I'm mm-hmm. learning about God. I'm learning about his nature and all of that. But I mean, just like you were talking about with your mother, I mean, just learning the human body, you are catching mm-hmm. glimpses of who God is. Um, that is, was just so beautiful to me as, as you just look around the world, the curiosity, I think of what is God up to in this place he made in all of these varying ways that might be considered, you know, you wouldn't learn at a seminary. You would just learn at a regular state school, you know, (laughs) yeah, or just a book in the library, you know, right. (laughs) So I just, I thought that was really beautiful. And again, very freeing, I think, um, that there's just a whole world out there he made. Yes, and I think that's, that's part of the invitation, right? That's part of when when God creates um, man and woman and he invites them into this new world that he has made, he does not just download like the software. It's It's an invitation to come and be part of what's going on. Um, and even we see, um, Adam naming the animals and this process of sorting and learning the differences between them. That is a process of exploration that he's been invited to. And I love, um, the word curiosity because I do think that's fundamental to who we are as human beings. And, um, there is a freedom and there is an invitation to come and just learn all that God has made in this world. Let me ask one more follow-up before we move on from this topic. Do you think that the idea of learning and expanding your knowledge, I'm just going back and I'm thinking about the attributes of God and just how infinite he himself is. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can always be, we ourselves are finite beings, but he's given us capacity To grow. I don't know. I just, as you were talking, I just thought, oh my goodness, he's infinite. Right. And he's omniscient. And so like one of his, his character traits is the God of all knowledge. And, And we're not going to become God, right? That's not the point. But as we reflect him, there is, um, a feature of who we are made in his image that must honor and, and recognize this, this, capacity. And I think one thing that perhaps folks can sometimes be nervous about, right, is this question of how do I know what's going to be true, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm going to be moving into this world and if there's this open invitation to learn, what if I learn the wrong things? Mm -hmm. Or what if I learn, um, you know, people have different explanations for things. And, And sometimes we associate like, um, higher 
level education or academic pursuit with becoming, um, I don't know, a skeptic or losing your faith. You hear a lot of that, like you're going to lose your faith if you go to this college or that. And I think one of the things that, again, from a place of abundance Mm. rather than scarcity to say, I trust that God is always going to meet any test that's thrown at him. Any apologetic question, any question that would try to undermine who he is, it may take a while to figure it out. And there may be wrestling and there may be deep struggle, but the confidence that God can meet any mental test or any intellectual test that's thrown at him, you have to have that confidence to, to move into this space um, of curiosity and learning. Um, because otherwise, if, you, if you're not quite sure God can handle the intellectual challenge, then what you'll do is just kind of stay put and just say, I'm happy with what I know. I'm going to stay in my safe places and I'm not going to push out. Do you think along with that, um, you know, I'm thinking about these professors in these colleges that, you know, parents warn their children, no, don't go there because of what they're scared that what they're going to learn that will be untrue. But I, I'm almost in my mind, like taking a step back and I'm thinking about these, for some reason, I'm thinking men here, professors that are men and the complexity of thought even now, even if they don't know the Lord and they're coming up with these, you know, very ideas that have are mainly the opposite of the Bible. I'm still, I, I feel like as image, you know, they themselves are image bearers. I feel like right. just the fact that they have the capacity to come right. up with complex thinking can glorify God. Does that sound crazy? No, it's, it's basically um, saying they are representing God's despite themselves. Yeah. They may be attempting with their mind to undermine the truth of God, but the very act of their thinking and their act of their processing is testifying to the reality of God as creator um, and to the fact that even in that, we are reflecting something larger than ourselves. So, I mean, I understand the fear and I understand the tension and the reality that some people do not use their mind to Mm. glorify God. But the very fact that they exist and they have a mind is they can't escape. Right. Glorify God. <laughs> Which well, I love it. It's he just, wins. He wins all day long. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's like, I think, you know, I've battled back and forth even when it comes to, well, should I really spend my time reading this book if I know I'm not going to agree? Whatever, you know, you just kind of go through this whole process. And I think it kind of comes back to this do I trust that the word is true? And if I do, and the word tells me that it's going to rebuke, it's going to correct any kind of wrong thinking that I have, I can have confidence that the word of God tells me if I'm going to go astray, he's going to correct that. And if I have the Holy spirit and if I am, you know, Re, and if I'm saturating my you know mind in the word, God is going to continue to renew my mind and he's going to correct my wrong. I mean, I've had plenty of wrong thinking corrected over, you know, I mean, plenty of wrong thinking corrected over the years. I just think it also comes with a confidence and do I trust the Holy Spirit to, to guide me? Do I really trust that I can engage with this 
writer or with this, I can, I can do this because I know that the spirit is keeping me and he's right. going to correct me if, if I'm wrong. Right. Well, Hannah, isn't your book all that's good. You talk about discernment. Is that yep. what all that's good is about? Yes, it is. Um, it's basically another invitation to seek out the goodness um, that is in the world because God made it despite the curse of sin. Um, and it is about processing what we are taking in based off of the virtues in Philippians um, 4, 8, and 9. So it is about discernment, uh, growing in wisdom, growing in critical thinking um, based off of virtue um, and the categories of things like truth and is it just, is it honorable, is mm -hmm. it pure, is it lovely, those kinds of questions. And, and um, having an openness to the world that says it's not all good, but it's also not all bad. And I've got to trust that God through his Holy Spirit can help me differentiate between those two things so that I can find the goodness that he has built into the world. That's really good. Beautiful. <laughs> okay. I really want to get, we don't, we're running low on, you know, time. I really, really want you <laughs> to talk about, you talk about it in chapter 10. And I loved the way that you talked about God's providence working hand in hand with his sovereignty. And, and the context of kind of that conversation was, with our identities, you know, there are things that we can't control in the world. There are things that we can't control and, and it causes us to almost to, to scorn parts of ourselves and covet others. Can you just, can you just talk to us about that? Can you just talk to us about the relationship between what God's, God's providence and his sovereignty in creating you as an image bearer? Well, and make sure you define that just in case we have oh, yeah. Right. that are new to these technical terms. <laughs> so when I use the language of providence um, and God's sovereignty, I'm uh, nodding to the fact that there are so many things about who you are that you have no choice in. Yeah. That you don't get to choose where you were born, when you were born, to whom you were born. You don't get to choose your sex. I mean, like this, even the question of maleness and femaleness is like one of the fundamental limitations that we run up against right away to say God has chosen for you that you would be female. God has chosen for you that you would be born at this time in this place. And I think there are so many um, facets of our life that are outside of our control and yet we live in a culture that emphasizes choice. So we live in a society that basically met, sends the messaging that everything about you is up for grabs and your success is your choice too, right? Mm -hmm. so, so it's not just the kinds of maybe more progressive um, messaging that we would think about in terms of gender or sexuality where you can choose whatever you want there. But if choice is the basis of the way your life is constructed, then you're also responsible for every difficult thing that has ever mm. come into your life. You're also responsible for the fact that you worked really hard and nothing happens or you can't get um, where you think you should be. And so choice is a false kind of freedom that our society gives us. And, and the, the opposite of choice is not 
oppression by other people or a lack of voice over our own life. The opposite of this kind of unfettered choice is someone's making these choices and it's God. And God has sovereignly in his power, in his wisdom, in his goodness Mm -hmm. and in his love has ordained the boundaries of your life and has ordained um, things that you had no say in. And so at that point, there's also the question of how how do we think of the the broken things or the evil things that have affected us as well? And, and we do not attribute, um, you know, sin to God, but we're also grappling with all the things that make up who we are. And if we don't have a category beyond choice, mm. then it, it really leaves us both helpless and hopeless mm. because we're either carrying that weight on our own backs that that we have to make something of our lives or if you know really harmful things have happened to us then that's on the back of someone else who has victimized us right and without god in that scenario there's just we get caught there's very little way out of it and very little way to affirm um the glory of our humanity and our callings so for me, the process of recognizing and submitting and surrendering to mm. the features of my life that God has chosen for me has been both the pathway to freedom mm. and the path to knowing what I'm supposed to do in the world, mm. that, that answering those questions of vocation. So, you know, I like to tease people like, um, if you find this combination of highly philosophical, female, pastor's wife, hard to deal with, well, I do too. And <laughs> I had to submit to God putting this all together. Yeah. And so you have to submit to the fact that he put this all together and this was his choice. And for me, that has been um, a struggle to say, if I were writing this story, I would write it differently. Mm. I would write different personality. I'd write different gifts. I would write different placement in the world. Um, I would write a different way of moving through the world. But I don't get to write the story. God is the author. He is the one with authority. Um, And I am the one who can receive his care and receive his providential choice and allow those choices to then guide my sense of, well, what are you calling me to? Hmm. If you have given me a certain placement in the world, what does that mean? If you've given me certain gifts, what am I supposed to do with them? If I have certain relationships or I don't have certain relationships that I think I should have, if I'm married, if I'm not married, if I have children or I don't have children, to the degree that those things are outside of our control, they are also the ways in which God is divinely ordering our lives for mm. us to accomplish certain things. Um, and we do better to lean into that and let that be um, than to carry the weight of having to define our own lives and see choice as the ultimate thing that would make us. Mm. So it's a matter of submitting to 
his wisdom by faith, really. I mean, you're really having a, you're recognizing his authority, mm-hmm. you know, over your life that you can't control at all. And you're saying, you know what, you know, more than me, mm-hmm. I'm going to believe that. I'm going to accept this is your plan for me. And, f- and then ask him, I guess, to lead you forward to flourishing within that realm. Yeah. Yes. And, and also to believe that those are the ways you will flourish. Yeah. Like it, it is a submission and surrender, but it's a surrender to um, your best good. It, it's a surrender to <laughs> um, yeah. like, like I simply have to, and this happens for, still happens to me regularly. Like I just am never going to be a certain type of woman. And every time I wish I was, every time I try to be, it blows up in my face. Hmm. And the surrender is not a surrender to like cultural norms or something like that. It's a surrender to say, okay, God made me this way. And Hmm. insofar as it's not sinful, like this is who he intends and expects me to be. Yeah. Um, and, and allowing for that freedom and that, that sense of, I have to, so for me, a lot of my personality traits run really counter to norms of womanhood, particularly in the church. Like I'm the one that's going to challenge. I'm the one that's more talkative. I'm the one that's going to step up and be like, but <laughs> <laughs> And insofar as I'm not behaving in arrogant or sinful ways, that's who God made me to be. Mm -hmm. And I have to choose, do I listen to people or do I listen to God? Do it's that question of who I ought I to obey? Mm -hmm. Like whose voice do I listen to? Is it the kind of pressure to say you shouldn't be like that? Don't act that way. Mm -hmm. Please be someone else. Yeah. We would really like you to be someone else. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, so would I. But (laughs) God has said, I'm this person and I ought to obey God rather than men. And all of that, of course, you know, with with the understanding that we're not talking about sinful behavior. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about indulging our own, you know, desires. But to the degree that we must accept who God has chosen for us to be, mm-hmm. even when it said, goes against what other people want us to be. Yeah. yeah. I love how you said that even the, you know, you were just saying that, that even types of your personality can help you discern your vocation. They can help you it can help clarify your calling in so many ways. Um, that's really helpful, um, for me. Like I think about, this is just such a small example, but in ministry or in, in a lot of, you know, my husband is in ministry and a lot of his stuff that we have done involves middle and high school students. And I have wished and wished and wished and wished that I could function better. Um, with those, with that age group, but it's a lot harder for me and he's great at it, you know? Um, and I can fall into just being envious and, and I can fall off the ditch on one side where I just don't put any effort in at all, or I can try to overcompensate and seem really cool. And that's not working for me either. You know, I really have to just kind of, like you said, operate who I am 
and trust that the gifts that God's given me, the personality that he's given me, it's going to be okay. <laughs> you know, like we're going to figure out how to function in that way together. And that's a really small example. You know, it's a smaller kind of scale example of what you're talking about. But while you were talking, I was thinking that's like a way in which I'm not where I'm kind of wishing that God had made me differently. Like, I wish this was easier for me. I wish this was, you know, I wish this came more naturally. Um, but it doesn't, and I don't have to be ashamed of that, you know? Well, I think that's something that it's hard earned. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes we, we don't like it because it creates tensions and I've learned that sometimes those tensions are what God wants. Mm. Um, just because it's difficult or because it creates a point of tension, the presence of the tension itself is not um, a testament that something's wrong. Right. It could be that there is something we are to add that kind of disrupts status quo to a degree. Mm. Um, and God is actually calling us into that to do that. Mm. Yeah, it's really helpful. All right. Any final thoughts, Hannah? Any words of wisdom? Any any other resource you think women need to hear? Any as we close? Oh, I want you to I tell just, us a little. Uh, oh, wait. I'm sorry. I want you to tell us when your book releases. Also, be sure to throw that right. in. There. We mentioned um, that. So, um, Turning of Days releases February second. So okay. a couple months out. Um, it is a little different than these other books because it's a little more, I don't know, maybe a little more authentic, a little more like you get a little more me. Like okay. I know you get a lot of me here. You get a lot, <laughs> but this is a little, I was a little looser. I was trusting it a little bit more. Okay. Um, so like what we just talked about, like that question of how much are you trusting what God's doing in you and how much are you trying to control it? And so this next book, I'm, I'm really curious to see, um, how it goes for readers. It is very, I mean, you'll recognize it as a Hannah Anderson book. Um, but it also is just a little looser in terms of a little more freedom in the writing. Um, and we'll see, we'll see how that does. Um, also, I just want to say how grateful I am that you all have read through this book because it was the first book that God led me to write, and even the process of writing it was an act of faith, and I felt like um, I was being called to write it before I was ready, mm -hmm. and I look back on it, and I think, oh... I change this and I change that and I do this differently. I mean, everyone does this, sure. but I also um, know that because of the way God in his providence, again, lined up this opportunity and called me into it, that I am confident it's the book it's supposed to be. Even these many years later, looking back on it saying, well, I do things now differently on some of the places, um, just organizationally. but what I find beautiful about it is that God's like, no, I didn't want you to write the book that you would write now. I want you to write the book that you would write then. Mm -hmm. And so seeing him use it and knowing that he wanted that book then, um, is again, such a testament to how he does not leave us alone in our vocations. He does not leave us alone in our work. He is, uh, providentially, 
um, putting us together, but he's also putting our work together. Mm. Um, and that none of this is us just being left on our own to try to produce what we think he wants. He's very active in our work. And I am just grateful to see him still being active in it. Well, I just feel like it's a great ending because just as we were talking about our work serving others, I mean, Hannah, you've really served us um, with this book and it just makes it more special to me even hearing you say that because it's just, well, thank God, praise the Lord, Mm -hmm. praise the Lord, you know, and so very grateful. Um, Speaking of the book, if you haven't bought the book yet, we will include the link down below wherever you find this video (laughs) (laughs) immediately or on our website. So, um, I did want to mention, I feel like you just the talk of humanness going back to just resources to throw out. I had somewhere along the way, even in the last six months had picked up Dorothy Sayers book, Mm -hmm. are you human? And I think I even saw that as a reference on one of these pages. And so Mm -hmm. just, just the conversation tonight, I just kept thinking maybe someone needs to just pick, it's a short little read. Um, I don't know, that might be one you recommend as well, but absolutely. That is one of, um, a very clarifying book for me. It's called Are Women Human? It's two short essays. Uh, one is called Are Women Human? And then there's another one in that same book entitled The Human Not Quite Human, I think is what the title is. Yeah. Um, and it's some of those foundational pressure points that she really gets to about this relationship between what it means to be human and female. Um, so it, it's a very good book. Awesome. And she was a Christian writer. I mean, I want to, you know, make sure she, she's a brilliant woman. She wrote a lot of different things as she wrote mystery novels, she wrote theology, philosophy. Um, and that, that little book of essays is one of her lasting gems. All right. Well, Courtney, right. you want to? Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Hannah. Um, for everyone that is watching this video, post conversation. Um, just keep an eye on our social media pages. We are going to announce our, our next book. And like we said earlier, the books that we pick are going to be on topics that are specific to, you know, theology of work and how to image, how to be image bearers in the world and to promote human flourishing and all these things. And so we're going to make that announcement soon. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. I feel like I could just keep talking for the next three hours. I mean, actually, it's like, I just want to soak up everything you're saying. It, it was really helpful. Us and it's late there. <laughs> I know. It was really clarifying though. And I feel like, you know, even in the cultural moment that we're in, just, it was, it's refreshing just to hear about the dignity of all persons. And it, it spurs me on to want to work well, um, you know, just to image him in the way that I'm working in my home and in my job and just in all of these different ways. So like Courtney said earlier, thank you so much for writing the book and thanks for taking your time out to talk with us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for the invitation. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe and leave a review for this podcast. Check out our show notes for links to any resources mentioned in this episode. Also, Women in Work released our first ever book, Women in Work, Bearing God's Image and Joining in His Mission Through Our Work. Be sure to order your copy today. You can find more information about the book on our website at womenwork.net.
If you enjoy this type of content, we would be honored if you would consider supporting the work and mission of this organization. You can become a monthly donor or give a one-time gift today. Any gifts received will be stored to continue the work of inspiring, encouraging, and equipping women to leverage their gifts for the kingdom of God. Thanks for your support.